Well, turn with me now, if you would, in your Bibles uh, to the book of Acts. This is our last message uh, in, a, in a series that's gone over a year. Um, and uh, uh, God bless you. Um, uh, Acts 28, if you're using the blue Bibles here in the, here at the church, uh, in, the, in the seats in front of you, that's page 1,192. And uh, finally, 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 Paul is going to get to Rome. Uh, yeah, hooray. Uh, Acts chapter 28, uh, the whole chapter, we're, we're wrapping everything up. Uh, next week, if you want to read ahead, uh, we are starting a new series in the book of Judges. <clears throat> Here now the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled the fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were, they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when he had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Purioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letter from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. 
But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to the sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through, the, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all bold, without with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we pray that uh, we would hear these words as the church has throughout the centuries. Lord, we, uh, we pray that we would not have a kind of chronological snobbery that says that we know this word better than they did or rule out certain things that we hear, but we would hear it as those uh, who took it down, intended it for us to hear it, and that by your Spirit, we would hear it and that our ears would be opened. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I, think, I think to modern ears, there's just something strangely unsatisfying about the end of the book of Acts. For, for, for many people, you read through the whole book and you think, why does it end like that? Uh, I, I, I want to look at why it seems so unsatisfying the way that it ends, and see it by looking at, at at least four paradoxes that are in the text. Because in the end, of course, I want you to see that what is strangely unsatisfying is actually very satisfying. And, uh, uh, and, and there are four paradoxes that are in the text, I think, that lead to that. Um, you remember what a paradox is. It's something that seems contradictory, but may well be true. Uh, let me give you an example. I, I, I have a car that's out in the parking lot. Uh, it's, uh, it's 11 years old, and I think, I think I'm being honest. I think I'm being truthful. I think that over the years, I have actually replaced every piece on that car. <laughs> so the paradox is, is it actually my car? <laughs> you know, is it the same car when you've replaced every single piece on it? Some, but I get in it like it's my car, and it's the same car. You see, it's a paradox. Uh, it, 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 it may be weird, but it may, be, but it may actually be true. Um, why is it, for instance, that, that water is cheaper than diamonds since human beings need water? There are places on this earth where people, people don't have water. Water is a very rare thing for them to have it. And yet, for some reason, in this culture, almost wherever you go in this world, diamonds are more valuable than water when we need water. It's a paradox. See, Well, there are, 
there are four paradoxes, not contradictions, but four paradoxes in this last chapter. Uh, Some of these, we've been leading up to these. You've seen some of these already. Number one, in the midst of disaster and death, Paul thanks God. It seems strange that some would do that. In the midst of disaster and death, Paul thanks God. Uh, Number two, uh, a man repeatedly judged as not guilty remains a prisoner right up through the end of this book. Over and over again, he's put on trial and everybody says, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. But for some reason, this guy's still in chains. It's a paradox. Uh, Number three, while the main messenger of the gospel remains imprisoned, the gospel goes out unhindered. Why does that happen? How does that happen? It seems to be a paradox. And finally, we've seen this before many times, uh, for those whom the gospel was meant to go to first, once again, they reject it, and those on the outside, those for whom you would think wouldn't want to have anything to do with the gospel, because, by the way, believing the gospel might get you killed, they're the ones that are receiving it seems to be a paradox. So let's look at those four and then figure out why the ending of the book is the ending of the book. Number one, in the midst of disaster and death, there is is courage. And and Paul is thanking God. Now, remember who we have here in the person of the Apostle Paul. He is a prisoner. Not because he broke into somebody's house. Not because he didn't pay his parking tickets. He is a prisoner because he preaches the gospel. He is a prisoner because what he does over and over and over again is he says that what's wrong with the world is that that we have this thing called sin and he preaches as as, as the way to cure that problem. He preaches Christ and him crucified. That's what he does. That's why he's in chains. Um, uh, Verse 15 At the moment, of course, though, that he sees these brothers in Rome, he's about to do something that once again got him imprisoned everywhere he goes. He's thanking God that he's there. Now, if everything goes in Rome the way it's gone everywhere else, he's going to stay in those chains, but he's thanking God for it. Now, I don't know about you, but if I I do things that every time I do them, I get arrested for them, I tend to do them less. Paul keeps doing it over and over again. It seems to be a paradox. Now think about that. He's still a prisoner. It's not like it's the moment of his release when he sees his brothers, and yet he's thanking God. Think about some of the other things that have been leading up to this, right? He's just had a severe storm at sea. We saw that last week. He's thanking God. Um, But then it's one thing to get caught in a storm. It's a whole other thing to be shipwrecked The boat breaks up as they're trying to get to shore. Some have to swim to shore in floating pieces of the boat that they were in. And Paul is thanking God. This is the stuff of long-running TV shows, right? And yet uh, Paul thanks God. Then as they get to the shore, the soldiers try to kill him. Paul's thanking God. Paul is looking for his day in court before Caesar, all because the soldiers don't want to be responsible for keeping him. Here they are. They land at this island called uh, called Malta. And the soldiers, they don't have any cells to put all these prisoners in because the boat is broken up. They happen to have these, these, these criminals like Paul on board. So if any of these criminals get away, they're responsible. They die as Roman soldiers if, they're, if, if, if their criminals get away. So the idea is, let's kill them now. 
There's a logic to this. Let's kill them now so this doesn't happen. And yet Paul is thanking God. And finally, here, here he is on a cold night. They need wood for a fire to warm themselves. Paul pitches in like, the, like, like everybody else that was on the boat. He's gathering sticks. And one of the branches in the bundle is actually a snake, semi-dormant because it is cold outside, but now awake as it gets closer to the heat and it latches onto Paul, bites Paul's hand, and yet Paul takes courage and thanks God. And then did you notice, it happens here too. Paul's on trial again. Everywhere he goes on trial. He's in trial before the centurion. He's in trial before Festus. He's in trial before Felix. He's in trial before the Sanhedrin. He's on trial before Agrippa. And now he gets to this island where you would think, you know, again, it would look like Gilligan's Island. And the islanders are like, snake bit him, must be a murderer. <laughs> doesn't matter. There's, 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 a, there's a court everywhere you go in this world. And, and, and so there he is. And, and, and suddenly he's guilty of murder until he's not. He doesn't swell up. He doesn't fall dead. And Paul thanks God. I got to tell you, even if I got bit by a snake today, it's not even a poisonous snake on my way out of Hope Presbyterian Church today. I got to tell you, I'm not praising God for that. That's just not something I want. Paul, Paul thanks God. There's even sort of a throwaway here. Don't, don't miss this too. Of course, it's never a throwaway in Scripture. But after three months on Malta, pretty nice place to be, uh, certainly after you've been shipwrecked, Paul gets back on a boat. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I've known people who have been on planes where they thought it's going down. They don't get back on planes. I, I know people, uh, a guy I went to college with was in a really bad boating accident. He's never been back on a boat again. Paul's been shipwrecked. He's been, on, he's been through four shipwrecks, I think, by my count. Uh, he's, he's back on a boat again. And uh, he's back on a boat with twin gods as figureheads. Now, these, were two, fig, these two figures were, were the twin sons of, of Zeus and Leda. Why do we know that? Because that's the way all the boats were. I mean, you used to, we have boats in museums from that time, the twin gods of, 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 of uh, sons of Zeus and Zeta, twins named Castor and Pollux, twin sons um, that were the patron gods of mariners. One of them was supposed to be the god who would always still the storms, keep the winds at bay, or make sure that they were always wind, you know, back winds that would, would push you forward. The other one was there to, pr- to protect the seamen. And yet, Paul is thankful not to Pollux, not to Castor. He's, he's thankful to God. Why, why, after all this, is Paul so thankful? Because he knows who his God is. He knows his God is the God over the seas. He knows his God is the God over the winds. He knows his God is the God over the snakes. He knows his God is the God over, over, over shipping lanes and, and this world and hearts and, 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 and guards and centurions. He has the one God who's over all of this. And then he knows that his life is in the hands of his God, he can thank God for everything that happens to him. Brothers and sisters, Paul thanks God because he belongs to God. Now, 
with this first paradox, I have to ask us, how many of us in times of trial, in times of suffering, have that kind of faith knowledge? Hmm? Have that kind of faith knowledge? That when we are in the midst of some kind of disaster, we can still thank God. I'm not saying, by the way, oh, gee, you know, we, we were talking about this last week, another shipwreck. Yes. You know, I love a good shipwreck. You know? um, in fact, let's gather the wood from the boat that fell apart. We can use that for the fire on shore. You know, shipwrecks are great. You know? I'm not saying we like these things. But do we have the kind of faith knowledge and trust in our God that says, I can thank God in all situations? How many of us can do that? The faith knowledge that comes from knowing God's purposes. God saved you, remember, when you were at sea. Is that not true? When, 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 when many of us, many of us could say this today in, in this room, when our lives were a shipwreck, that is when we first knew the love of our Lord. Some of us would say, you know what? The Lord brought me into that shipwreck. I, I, was, in, I was at the end of my rope, or, or I was deep in addiction, or I, 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 I had no money to pay the bills. I, 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 I went through divorce, and the Lord came to me in the shipwreck of my life. So do we have the kind of faith knowledge that, 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 that comes from that, that rebirthing experience that many of us had to say, now that we're his, do we think well, that's never going to happen again? He's never going to use stuff like that again? That that's just now judgment upon us? Or do we have the kind of faith knowledge that Paul has to say, he's going to use this too? Maybe he's going to take me to the next place in my sanctification that I need to go. Do we have that? Because we should. God saved you when you were dead in sin and transgression. But he didn't save you just to save you, but to, but to redeem you, to remake you. That's why he did it. You have that faith knowledge to know in trials that God is, God is creating a masterpiece in your trials. Perfect example of that, of course, is the book of Job. Uh, you, you look at the book of Job. Job starts off with God giving Satan permission to attack his man Job and bring and to bring suffering into his life. When you read that, you go, why in the world would a good God do that to someone he loves? Many of us have never gotten past the, the never actually read Job all the way through. We can't actually get back uh, and, and get through and pass through those opening chapters when we see God doing that. But if you do get to the end, here's what you learn. Do you think Satan intended to produce one of the greatest books in the history of the world that has helped hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of people to be faithful to God in the midst of suffering? You think Satan intended to allow that masterpiece to be produced? I don't think so. <laughs> but God allowed him to do that such that in and through Job's suffering and God's work in his life, that one of the greatest masterpieces of, of, of the issue of the problem of evil was produced such that the Bible really is the only place that has an answer for it. 
what, what Paul is saying here is God's going to rescue me from bad things or through bad things, but either way, he's going to rescue me because I am a part of his masterpiece. Now, by, by masterpiece, do I mean me? I'm his masterpiece. No, I, I mean us. I mean the church is his masterpiece. We are the, the body of Christ, such that our stories are being knit together into this masterpiece that is the bride of Jesus. We are the body of Christ, see? And he's doing that in and through you. And sometimes the way that the hard edges get knocked off, the the way that you are reshaped, the way that your car gets replaced and becomes new again, even though it's your car, right? Is is the the pieces are replaced. A a heart is changed. A life is changed. And you're, you're made new. That's part of the paradox. You see, even, even in times of peace, but even in times of trial, you are his in those times of trial. You're on his boat. You're in his storm. It's all his trial. You are his because he's doing something with that. He's making you new. Second paradox. Paul is the innocent man who remains a prisoner. Paul's the innocent man who remains a prisoner. Here's a question. If a sovereign God can easily save Paul from something like a poisonous snake, why can't he release Paul from prison? That should be easy. Why can't he save Paul from jailers and from killers? Why can't he save Paul from being shipwrecked? And the answer, of course, is he can. He can. The paradox points out that God's agenda is different from our agenda. We always think all shipwrecks are bad. But for God, not every shipwreck is ultimately bad. Our agenda is different than his. Paul assumes this. In, in, in the reading that, uh, that Chun did from, from Philippians, Paul reflects back on what he sees God doing. And, and remember what was read to you or what you read along with. What has happened to me, Paul said, has really served to advance the gospel so that it becomes known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Here is Paul every day. He's attached to somebody else. Now, he could just say as he's attached to somebody else, what's this for? I'm supposed to be God's evangelist. He's told me this. Jesus revealed it to me on on, on the road to Damascus. I'm supposed to be out there, or he could look to the person to whom he's chained and say, have you heard about the gospel? (laughs) Paul Paul assumes that God has him there because God's Lord over that shipwreck of his being in chains as well. He doesn't look at, 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 at his agenda overriding God's. He doesn't say to God every day in the morning, you know what, God, here's my prayer. You would have my agenda today so that I could be an evangelist in my way, so that I could, you know, this could be my mega church, right? I'm going to Rome because I want the biggest church possible, right? He goes in chains, and he's still in chains, and he's not leaving chains, and he's saying, I'm glad I made it to Rome. What other, who's my next guard (laughs) that I can talk to? Because God's agenda is different than Do you think of your life like that? Or are you constantly pressing against every negative thing that happens to you as is, this is only God against me. This is God's judgment of me. 
He's pressing on me again for something I did when I was a kid. I must have committed some sin that's not forgivable. How do you look at that? Let's think about that. What is it that you face? Yes, Paul is called to some things as an apostle that you're not, but there's application for us here. Paul was called to chains, prisons, shipwrecks, snake bikes. What are you called to? Maybe there's a rejection in your life. Maybe, maybe you have, you've had parents that you would never have chosen and you think they have not been good parents. Uh, have you been called to disability? Uh, what about, maybe, maybe the genetics that you were born with increase your vulnerability to some kind of disease that other people don't seem to struggle with? What about, what about, what about confusion about your sexuality? What is it that you face? The snake never gets the last word, either on the island of Malta, snake doesn't get the last word in the garden. All of these things that you think hinder you don't get the last word when you're in Christ. That's what Paul's living out for us. What if, and we have to get to this in our last message, it would be a crime if we didn't in the last message from Acts. What if God was using the chains, using the shipwrecks, using the snake bike to simultaneously conform Paul to the likeness of his son, the image of his savior, the ultimate innocent man, and to spread the gospel at the same time? What if? God was doing that because you know what? He's revealed those purposes to us. The Great Commission says we're to, 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 to spread the gospel and, 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 and as part of the gospel, we are being sanctified. We're being set apart. We're being made new. What if that's what was happening for the believer in all the struggles that you're going through? That those were his purposes, not to judge you because you've been judged in Christ. You've been found. We, we, we just said it in, in the words of absolution, right? You've been forgiven. Christian, you've been forgiven. So, those, so, so these trials for the, for the believer, are, they're not a judgment upon you. They may be part of living in a fallen world, but, but we see through something like the book of Job that God is using these things to conform you to his likeness and to use those things for the furtherance of the gospel. What if that's what God is doing? Now, how does that change then all the struggles and trials that you're going through with your bad genetics, with the breakup you've had, with your disability, with with all these trials that we all go through? What are they? What what are those things that you believe are getting in the way of your pursuing life in all its fullness? Whether they're health challenges, whether it's lack of work, you, you can't get into the graduate program that you wanted. Your, your, your financial resources are not what you think they should be. Is it, maybe it's been a tragedy. Maybe it's been your bondage to some sin, besetting sin, that just you've, you've fought it and it's just not gone away. That's, that's the paradox, you see. All of those things, no, everything. Let's not leave out the good things, too. All of those things that you can think of that thwart your purposes for your life cannot, will not, will never thwart God's purposes for your life. It just won't happen. It just won't happen. 
In fact, the paradox is that the things that you so easily look at as a hindrance to your purposes are the very means that God works in and through us to conform us to the, to, to, to the likeness of the Son and to further the gospel. I was listening to a, a lecture by Ian Duguid recently. He, he was talking about the Apostle Paul and he was saying that, that, that chains, chains make a prisoner both weak, they're heavy, and needy. You can't do things for yourself. Weak and needy is where we need to be. Weak and needy turns us into the children of God that God has made us to be. Weak and needy and relying upon the Lord. That's, that's who we're made to be. What are the chains in your life? What's holding you back? What's hindering you? Have you started to look at those things not as just something against you, but something that God is using to do something in you? Start to think about that. This brings us to uh, paradox three, that, that even as the main messenger of the book remains imprisoned, the gospel continues last words of the book of, of, of Acts. We're starting to see why it ends here. The, the, the word goes out unhindered, even though Paul's in chains. His movements are controlled. He's a prisoner, but he's taken to the house of the chief man. The Greek there means the number one guy on the island. Paul's trapped on a boat for many weeks, yet the gospel goes forth precisely because why? Paul's trapped on a boat out at sea. If, if I, if I, you know, if, if I met the, the person I thought was the, you know, the, the next Billy Graham or something like that, I wouldn't stick him on a boat <laughs> for a year. Yeah, I, I, that's not a big enough platform. You know, you've got to have more popularity. God puts Paul in a boat to a captive audience. And, and in a sense, they're, it, it, the odd thing is, they're actually chained to him. Through, the, through, through, through one person on the boat, they all, hear, they all hear the gospel. They're not going anywhere. The point is that God uses methods that the world counts as foolishness. You're an individual in your workplace and you think, I don't have a voice here. Or, I'm, 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 I'm the only follower of Jesus on the block that I know. I'm the only, I'm the only Christian on my floor at college. What can I do? Have you turned that around and said, God put me as the only Christian on my floor at college. <laughs> it, it turns things around. It turns things around. It's a paradox. You can shame the messenger, but you can't shame the gospel. Some of us don't speak up because we're worried about sounding like fools and we're worried about undergoing shame and ridicule. And, and I, I, I saw somebody posted something on, on uh, social media last week about, uh, about Jesus and, and immediately the, the person got hammered. One person wrote, oh, you're the one, you're one of those people that believes in the mythical, magical sky god deity man. Uh, that, that was like, boom, you know, shut up. I'm sure he felt ridiculed, made fun of. But 
can make, you, you can ridicule the messenger, you can toss him at sea, but you cannot shame the gospel. We fear we're going to crumble under social media pylons or the professor's, professor's withering judgment or a family member's mockery at Thanksgiving. But you can't shame the gospel. It's going to do what it does. It's baked in, right? The, the, the gospel is a stumbling block to, Jew, to Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. This is not a new thing. Our, our fear, our shame, our incompetence, our sin, these are things that can hold us back from speaking a word when the opportunity presents itself, but the gospel cannot be stopped. God is never frustrated by our failures. God invites us to be part of the process, and we should accept that grace, gracious invitation to be a part of the process to make sure that the gospel goes out. But we are not to worry about the shame of not saving people or not doing it the right way because that's his job. That's what he does. It's his gospel, his word. I love when, 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 when at verse 15, Paul gets off the boat. He arrives at Rome. He, we've been following Paul and following Paul and following Paul. And, and what happens when he gets there? The brothers were there. He's not been there, but the gospel's already been at work. God's been there. Paul didn't know that that would happen when he got off the boat, but they, 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 it's, it's weird. They, they don't seem to have heard any of the negative stuff about Paul, so they want to hear from him. And yet, there are already Christians in Rome. We've got to get to our next point, but one of the great things about worshiping an everywhere God is he doesn't need you to be everywhere that he works. Let that, let that weight fall off your shoulders. He, he dispenses ravens to bring food to prophets in distress, not when you're available or even when the ravens think they're available, but when he wants to. And even if we're imprisoned ourselves by being tongue-tied with somebody we want to talk to about the Lord or nervous or we get confused about maybe we made an argument poorly, the gospel goes unhindered. It's a paradox, but it's true. In our weakness, we see this in our Lord, he manifests his strength. Finally, last paradox. Those for whom the gospel was meant to go first, the Jew, the covenant insider, they once again in Rome reject it. And those on the outside, those whom you would think would want nothing to do with Israel's God, the, 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 in Rome, they have lots of gods. Why would they only want to worship one? They could have many more. And especially if being a Christian gets you persecuted, they're the ones that do receive the gospel. That's a paradox. Why does that happen? You wouldn't expect this, not even in Rome, where in verse 17, Paul again begins with the Jewish leaders. We forget this, but for over 2,000 years at this point in time, God's been working with one group of people. He's been working with one group of people. And, 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 and God has laid the groundwork for those people. He's given them his law. He's given them his precepts. He has made promises to only them. More than that, he's proved his faithfulness to this one people, the so-called people of God, in his covenants to them over and over 
and over and over again. You would think that these would be the people then that when, when Christ is presented as the long-promised Messiah that fulfills ultimately all those promises, the King has come. They would be the ones to say, that's us, that's ours. And they'd embrace it. And that is not what happens. That is not what happens. God's chosen people reject the gospel, but others that, 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 uh, that were unprepared, didn't have the scriptures, hadn't heard those promises, didn't know who the patriarchs were, didn't know how to eat kosher, definitely didn't know what circumcision was. These unchosen Gentiles, they're the ones that believe. It's a paradox. Now, why would Jews who were primed for this news reject it and those who had no idea about who Yahweh was until yesterday start to, to believe it? And yet, Paul says, guess what? God announced this from the very beginning. Paul turns to Isaiah 6, of all things, and he starts quoting there and says that that's exactly what God said would happen. And the reason why is he wants to show both those who were the people of God and those who are the Gentiles that he's a certain kind of God and we better grab onto this at the end of Acts. He's a God of grace. He's a God of grace. All those Jews, they had, they had the law. They, they had these precepts. They knew who Mo- Moses was. They, they, they would sing songs about Moses coming down the mountain. And they, and they knew how the, 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 the people had disobeyed. And they, they lived through the Exodus. They had been the, the, the people enslaved. And they, they, they knew about their ancestors making bricks out of straw and mud. And they knew how they were delivered and, and delivered miraculously. And, 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 and they knew how even God had saved them from their idolatry. And the prophets drew them back to the things that they knew. And, and what they did was they turned this into, privately, they turned it into, this is our identity as the chosen people. On top of that, they had this wonderful glaze of law. Like, not only did God give us the law, but we're the only people that actually do it. So that their hearts that were supposed to be revealed, Jeremiah promises, hearts that would go from stone to, to softness, that's what the circumcision was about. What, they became hard. How ironic that God who would harden Pharaoh's heart would then watch his people, people's hearts harden. And then these other group of people, who, who, these Gentiles who, who knew not the law, didn't have the promises, just did whatever, whatever they felt like doing and, and had their own gods and made their own gods and carved them out of wood, they too were, were imprisoned. They too were enslaved. They were just enslaved to themselves and could never break free of their own hearts. It's like, it's like the culture today. We're all, we're all enslaved to our own hearts, our own desires, and who we want to be and the identities that we want to create for ourselves. Those things enslave us. We're not free. Every time we think we choose a new identity to be even more free, we get enslaved to the new identity. Have you noticed that? Such that God is telling both those groups miraculously through what he's done here. I am the God of grace whether you're trying to live up to your own law or my law, you are a failure. That's sort of baked into what's happened. And I've been trying to tell you graciously and and slowly and, and ever patiently that I want Jesus for you. I want Jesus for you. 
Isn't it interesting that Paul heals no one? We see no miracles happen during Paul's entire time in Jerusalem, but he hits the island of Malta with these islanders and Publius's father, and start, suddenly the healings start to occur because these are needy people. Friends, these are the paradoxes of the gospel. A free man in chains is presenting a gospel so that people in bondage can go free. God's ways are so different from ours, and thank God that they are. And this is where we have to end the series. More and more, our, our ways, of course, have to be conformed to God. And, 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 and you know, we started out saying that, that there's something strange about the ending of Acts, that it's so unsatisfying. You know, what exactly happens to Paul here? Where's the end of it? Where's the end of the book? Uh, uh, exactly what happens to him before Caesar? Where's that? Uh, does Paul ever get vindicated? Where's that? Exactly what happens to him when he meets Caesar? It, hey, is Paul ever set free? Where's that? How does Paul die? Does Paul die? What, what happens? We, we want to know what happens to our heroes. And that would be satisfying if the book was about Paul. That would be satisfying to us if, if, if somehow... Paul was our hero, and we want to see how our hero turns out. But here's the interesting thing about the end of the book of Acts. It's not about Paul. It's not about us. It's about us in Christ. The gospel is going to continue to go out unhindered. It's happening right now. So that others can be a part of the story, the masterpiece that God is doing in Christ. And, and some of us can be very, very down on how uh, uh, you know, the cars driving by. These people aren't going to church. Not good golf today. Shopping, maybe. <laughs> you know, you, sometimes you feel like, are there any, are, am I the only Christian on my block, on my floor, in my house? What is God doing? He is making a masterpiece. And, and while you maybe see a world that's, that's in chains and, and, and snake bit by all kinds of ideologies and bad thinking and uh, evil worldviews and, 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 and so forth, he's releasing a people through the power of the gospel from all of that to weave us all together from every tribe, every, every tongue, every nation, every race, bringing us all together to be one people. That is our hope in Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. And it's happening unhindered. See that in you. See the irony. See the paradoxes in that. Not as some, something to be gotten over with or passed by, but embrace it as the paradox of your life. I am a sinner. Saved by a holy God. By grace alone. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we're so thankful that this uh, book, if we would read it a little bit differently, is not a biography of Philip or Peter or Stephen or Paul, but is the story of your bride, is the story of the church in Christ, the story of the gospel, and the power, Lord, of your message in Christ to save. 
And so, Lord, save from the beginnings. Maybe watch it here and, and watch it explode, Lord, from the beginnings in a little upper room in chapter 1 in Jerusalem, watching it spread unhindered to Judea, watching it spread unhindered to Samaria, and here to the ends of the earth in Rome. Rome, the place that the people then thought was the center of the world. That's just the next place you're going. So Lord, may we see it spread to, through our hearts, grow our hearts, change our hearts, to our neighbor's heart, to those that we love, to those without hope. May we see it go unhindered till there is a day when every knee bows. In Jesus' name, amen.